In October 2019, a team of visually impaired and sighted artists and collaborators took journeys together into the city of Bristol with the aim of uncovering the usually unheard stories of visually impaired citizens and returning these stories to the heart of the city narrative. The journeys were recorded and revealed such a treasure trove of insights and shared experiences that the City of Threads podcast was born. Each episode is hosted by core members of that team and features the journeys they took. So join us on an immersive audio journey into the City of Threads. Welcome to Is Anything Impossible? I don't argue, although I might have done. Um, (laughs) Because I'm a stopper and looker. I'm not a somebody who sort of rushes through life. I like stopping and looking at things and having little reflections. Well, he fed your dog as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and well, he says that if I'm going to eat a bacon sandwich, my dog's got to have a sausage. So. Yeah. And what are you? What are you interested in now? It's still the same kind of genre of music, so funk, psychedelic rock, blues orientated. Um, yeah, you were right away with it when I saw you on the YouTube clip. Yeah. <laughs> Just gone. We were rocking out. As I told you earlier, I did what I wanted. Always got into trouble for it, but it was worth it. So, condiments of the season. We both played um, musical instruments and we played at a pub called the Lamb and Flag at Cribs Causeway. I did. I used to play accordion out there on a Tuesday night. I played drums on a Thursday and Friday. So that's back to 1968, because we came down one night to listen to your band playing, and the joke always was with the, the Jones boys, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, was You could tell what time it was, because they played the same set every night. Well, we did <laughs> want to learn a lot, did we? <laughs> that was John Vickery and Alan Dyke, who have been friends for a little over 40 years. And in this episode, we'll be taking you on three journeys into our city. Alan's... Johns and Virginia Rowans, who joined our project for a day in October of 2019. I'm Nick Bignall. And I'm Alan Dyke. And we are your co-hosts. So let's unwind the ball and follow the threads of what these journeys reveal. Right, Nick, should we get started? Let's go. Our first journey is John's, writer of witty poems, teller of corny jokes, and one of the longest-standing members of the City of Threads team. Hi, my name's John Vickery. I'm journey lead today. I'm working with a good friend of mine, John DeFreitz, who we've known for each other for quite a few years via the bowling club, where we're both officers of the committee. Okay, so I'm John, and I'm going to be the guide uh, and trying to help in as best way I can. We're in the light studio at Arnolfini. The start and end point for all our journey takers. I have an eye condition which I was born with, commonly known these days as the rubella syndrome. I have congenital cataracts, nystagmus and now also glaucoma. Basically I have sight in my right eye which is about 75% of full vision and no use in the left eye. I carry it around as a spare. It's no good to anybody but if anybody wants an eye then... I've got one begging. All travellers begin by introducing themselves. 
then journey leads share information with their travelling companion about their site and what might be needed in terms of guiding on their journey. I also wear two hearing aids, which are digital. Just to add to the full set of disabilities I have, I also have mobility issues, which means I travel around in a mobility scooter. So while they're doing that, shall we find out a bit more about my mate, John Vickery? I was born in Southmead Hospital in 1947, lived in Phillips Street in Bedminster in a two-up, two-down, which we shared. My mum, my dad, my elder sister Anne and I, remember a piano in the living room. Mum was, uh, when she was a, a teenager and into her 20s, sang with a dance band. Um, it was very musical. Dad was a good singer, as was my sister, as myself, and very often... We'd be seen in the local pub and we'd be doing you know, three-part harmonies and all sorts. And Mum um, had a lovely voice. She was a very good pianist but didn't like playing piano and you'd have to really <coughs> press her to get up and actually play somewhere because she always thought somebody was better and there weren't many that were better. John's sister Anne would take him to the local station to wait for the steam trains to come in. When we lived in Phillip Street, opposite us was a bomb site where during the war the, the houses had been a direct hit. And just down the road from where we lived was the Bedminster train station. And Anne used to take me down in my pushchair um, to the station where steam trains, as they were in those days, you got, you know, all the sounds and all the excitement of trains coming and going. Even though I couldn't see very well, it was a, a real atmosphere. John had done his fair share of bumping into table legs and crawling into doors when his dad thought he should check things out. It wasn't until I was four that Dad took me to the local GP and said that there was a problem, and the GP said, no, there's nothing wrong, he's just a late developer. But Dad didn't accept that and took me to the eye hospital. Where John got the correct diagnosis and an operation that gave him some much-appreciated additional sight. Managed most of the time going through... Uh, school had the situation one day where the deputy headmaster called a, a meeting when, and dad came along and they were talking about me going to a special school as they called them in those days i knew straight away what that meant and you know, dad looked at me he said well what do you want to do and i always remember i still remember to this day i said i want to stay with my mates uh, and that's where i stayed this early experience of being asked what he wanted and being listened to was something that John never forgot. One of the things when you've got disability of any sort is that a lot of people make assumptions on your behalf. And one of the things a lot of disabled people say, please don't assume, ask. Back in Arnolfini, with all travelling essentials communicated, John and John leave the light studio and head out of the building. Once outside, they stand for a moment, taking in their surroundings. Arnolfini occupies an old 19th century tea warehouse that is bordered on two sides by the water and boats of the floating harbour. What do you think looking across the harbour, John? Uh, it's wet and grey and could be worse, could be raining. It's, it's quite a pleasant day, the wind's dropped. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm hoping I can get my roof done at home soon, but never, that's another, that's another, <laughs> another story. Okay. <laughs> Before setting off, all travellers read out the first of four wild cards that they've been given. 
designed to tune them in to the city journey. So this is the first card. Take a moment to stand together. Notice your breath, the ground beneath your feet, the movement of the air and the sounds of the city. As you set out on this first part of your journey together, take this awareness with you. Notice the city soundscape, the changing surfaces underfoot, the movement of air and the aromas, flavours and textures that you encounter along the way. So, okay. let's just take a moment to stand together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, breathe. <laughs> the benefit of the tape, I'm in a sat in my mobility scooter. And me, I'm just going to be on the right-hand side, um, hanging in and out as I pass the recorder when we stop places. And we'll try and give you the best journey possible that we can. Indeed. Okay. Okay. And as they set off over Princess Street Bridge, a swing bridge across Bristol's floating harbour, and on towards John's first stopping point on the other side, we're going to pick up the thread of John's story again. John had dabbled with the idea of being a piano tuner when he left school, but pretty soon found his niche with the job he ended up staying in most of his working life. I started work at the children's hospital as a telephonist. On the 16th of June, uh, 16th of May, sorry, 1966. What a memory. £12.18 a week. Good money. But um, shortly after that, in, in 72, the unions became active in the, in the health service and I became a shop steward for new, what was then NUPI, National Union of Public Employees. Um, later went on to become branch secretary of the branch and held that post for nearly 30 years before I retired on health grounds. So I was either good at what I did or they couldn't get rid of me. John was very active in the disabled movement of the union and was well known as someone who would help you fight your corner. People still approach him now, thanking him for the support he gave them on some case or other. We've arrived at the uh, front of the M shed, but I can't go this way in my scooter because there's a, a five-bar gate blocking the entrance. It's a recent addition to um, the, the way in. Our travellers are stood outside John's first stopping point, an old converted dockside transit shed that is now M Shed, a museum all about the people of Bristol. Um, there is like a, a staggered entrance, but because I'm in a, a scooter with a uh, cover on it, it's like driving a big square box and it won't go through the gate safely. So we're going to go along here and then behind the M Shed so that we can access it from that direction. That's it. They travel round the back, park up and go inside. OK, we're now in the uh, M Shed. You can tell by the atmospheric noise, there's a lot of people around youngsters, um, lots of interesting sounds go on. If I can just explain the reason why we, we've come here, I was part of a group called BPAC, Bristol Physical Access Chain, which helped to advise the Bristol Council and the staff here about disabled access. So not just for visually impaired, but all sorts of access issues. So things like the lift have tactile buttons so you can feel the floor number. Bristol Physical Access Chain or BPAC, is a group affiliated to the City Council who volunteer their time to improve access for disabled people within the built environment. There's all sorts here, because one of the reasons why they did it so well, one of the people that worked here previously was one of our members of our club, uh, Paul O'Sullivan, who is himself blind. 
You are currently on a button. To click this button, press Control, Option, Space. <laughs> Hello, young Paul. Right, Long time no see. You can see me, but I can't see you. <laughs> That's John Paul and me at the start of a Zoom call we had, talking about Paul's role at MSHED and our time working together on it at BPAC. When I started my job in 2006, my role was to ensure two things, really. One was that the building was as physically accessible as possible for people of all kinds of different needs, and also that it included stories about disabled people. I formed two groups, one to look at stories or content for the museum, and one to look at physical access. And funnily enough, members of BPAC, other members of BPAC, including myself, um, ended up joining those two groups, which was really helped me to get off to a really good start. And also it ensured that there was a two-way flow of information that, that those members could then go back to BPAC and report what the museum was doing. And the museum knew what BPAC was doing. So it's a mutually beneficial collaboration. Yeah, it was interesting. I discovered there's information there pertaining to a group that both Alan and I belong to, which is Bristol and District Blind Bowlers. Um, and there's a, a, a colleague of ours who is a sighted player and helper actually wrote the history of uh, Bristol Blind Bowlers um, and there's a copy of it in the museum. I, I was quite taken, to, it was actually a, an item in the museum as a, you know, in its own right and I thought yeah this is fine, you know, we, we do exist, we are, we've arrived. Because we were there it in a way invited disabled people to go to the museum and take part in various activities. Paul was part of the people organizing things for us and he would put on an exhibition and tell us about it and it was really lovely because until those things happened not many people who were blind and disabled chose to go to the museum. Yeah, thank you, Alan. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the outstanding successes of MSHED, um, is that it really is a people's museum. It's, it's accessible to everybody. So disabled people get in there and use that museum and benefit from it, just like everybody else. Paul and his team worked with an audio labelling device called a pen friend to make exhibits more accessible. And this was a small device that you could walk around the museum with and touch a specific sound trigger if you were interested in information about a particular object and then your pen friend would deliver you some recorded information about that object. When the Bristol Constabulary was established in 1836... They used it in the permanent galleries, but also in the temporary exhibitions, which was a bit of a game-changer as it ensured for the first time that temporary exhibitions could be easily audio-described and made accessible. At the risk of um, becoming a mutual appreciation society, I couldn't have done this without you guys. John, Alan, Paul and BPAC worked very closely together on all aspects of MSHED. Staff training, guiding, language, how to welcome people. Whatever my contribution was to the museum service, and whatever yours was, and, and, and Alan's, which were, which were significant and important. It's been a massive collaboration. I think, for me, what I learned, and it's not rocket science, is that if you don't plan 
to include everybody from the very beginning, you don't do it very well. So one of the most interesting Back outside the M-Shed, in our city journey, John and John have stopped to appreciate some of the sensory delights the harbourside offers. Yes, we're right outside the fish and chip shop, which a number of us often frequent. They do very nice fish and chips at a reasonable price, uh, but it, the, the smell in the air at the moment is of, of fish cooking, and you can't quite smell the vinegar, but uh, I can imagine the vinegar being put on, along with the salt and other condiments. So condiments of the season. The area our travellers are standing in is just behind M-Shed, on a street of double-stacked shipping containers that are filled with restaurants, bars and even a bamboo bicycle shop. Behind are riverfront housing developments that stretch out along the harbour side with its cranes and boats and the majestic Matthew Toll ship that is moored nearby. The steam train just uh, drove past us, which is a, a regular feature at the weekend here. So we get all the smells and uh, sounds of the steam train. The two Johns now start to head back towards Prince's Bridge and John's second stopping point, the bacon roll shop. Going along the way we are, the water's on the left. Um, you've got tram lines in the middle that uh, used to take the four massive great cranes that reached 30-odd plus feet in the air. Mm -hmm. And, and we're off uh, now to the bacon roll shop, which I'll find out the name when we get there. Ooh, I can feel my tummy rumbling already. <laughs> Encountering and overcoming obstacles as they go. The flooring changes from place to place. Sometimes you've got a concreted area. Very often, though, it's uh, like a cobbled area, which is very difficult if you're visually impaired. It's difficult for guide dogs to walk on. It's also difficult if you're using a long cane, because the cane gets stuck in the grooves. We can't go to the right, so we have to retrace our steps somewhat to get round to the back of the building and then off to the uh, bacon roll shop. John's heading off for cover. As a young child comes scooting past me on a scooter, I had to stop because I would have hit him. We're going to cross over Museum Street. Are we going to go up the cycle path back, again? Back to the bridge, yeah. Okay. Travelling along behind the M-Shed now, and we have a, a, a regular occurrence of three bicycles padlocked to bollards on the left. We've just, just gone over the bridge, as you can hear, cyclists and pedestrians, and there's traffic moving all around us at the time. Um, but John's crossed over with a specific uh, aspect to the Prince's Pantry. However, it looks very much closed, and if we're not going to get our bacon bap... And I didn't, but Alan, here's you and John later on talking about why that cafe has become a much-loved stopping point. When we go to our sessions at the Arnafini, we usually start off with a, 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 an egg and bacon roll. It was just such a shock that day when I was going around with my friend John um, to find it shut. What a disappointment. Well, he fed your dog as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and well, he says, if I'm going to eat a bacon sandwich, my dog's got to have a sausage. So. Yeah. Then you ate it. <laughs> important guide dog etiquette here. In general, it's really important not to feed a guide dog. You might distract them from their job. Hungry now, our intrepid travellers continue on their way down the obstacle-strewn Princess Street and on to the city centre. We're just coming on to the Bristol city centre. Welcome to the city centre. Marketplace, meeting place, passing through place, where ice cream vans and crepe and falafel stalls compete with cascade waterfall steps, seagulls, boats 
and numerous other cafes, bars and restaurants that fan out around it, the modern, vibrant town square. Which is a nightmare because the council, in its infinite wisdom, decided to have a road, a footpath, a cycle path, another footpath, um, and as you go along this particular area, although there are little cycle signs on the path, if you can't see them, you don't know they're there. All travellers were asked to consider which areas of the city were no-go zones for them, and this is John's. As John and John make their way through this urban obstacle course, let's hear from our many other travellers for whom this space is also a no-go zone. It's a busy, big, open space, not very many landmarks, and I think quite a challenging place to walk through by myself. Um, I, well, I, wouldn't, I don't think I would do it. It's changed so much over the years. It's much, much harder. I wouldn't do it on my own now like I used to do over the years. The sound of the traffic can be quite overwhelming, really, right. when you're trying to navigate. The oral hitting of the centre with its traffic and people and all sorts of obstacles which really disorientated me. I was aware that the psychopath cut straight across the pavement, but I suddenly realised if you've got any sight problems, there's no sign of it at all. Until you actually stand on the actual bike lane, you're not going to see none. Someone who, like myself, who is hearing impaired and mm. visually impaired, I'm not going to hear a bike coming. It's the silent vehicles you have to look for, like yes. the, the bicycles. Because yes. they can't hear any engine mm. and they can just swing around at any time. I find it quite scary here because I think I could walk into the water with my dog quite easily. The centre just doesn't really feel safe or very accessible to me as a fully blind person. I love the vibrancy of the centre of Bristol, but they've made it actually really inaccessible for visually impaired people. Right. So it's like it makes it much harder to yeah. be part of the vibrancy of the centre of, of the town, mm. of the city. And John and John are still navigating their way through. Yeah, we're halfway across the centre, and to my left and right are two posts in the ground. I'm um, not sure if they're lampposts or what they're posts for, but they're painted grey. And the floor to my left and to my right is also grey. So as a visually impaired person, particularly in certain light, they become invisible. This area of Bristol is a type of city design commonly known as shared space. Here's two experts from the University of Leeds. I'm Anna Lawson and I'm a professor in the School of Law at the University of Leeds, where I'm also Joint Director of the Centre for Disability Studies. My name's Brian Matthews. I'm a lecturer at the University of Leeds Institute for Transport Studies, a member of the Disabled Persons Transport Advisory Committee. Anna and Brian had a very crackly Zoom call where they talked Nick and Alan through what shared space is and how it's supposed to work. What is shared space? It's a concept that's, that was sort of introduced from the Netherlands. It's the idea that spaces, street spaces can be made safer by kind of leveling the playing field and, and uh, encouraging people to take notice of each other and respect each other. To, in order to do that, we remove the sort of the, the traditional barriers that have been introduced like curbs like paths and road space, separate space for, for different types of road user. Under the thinking that lies behind shared space, it's separating different road users from each other 
that makes people not take notice of each other and makes those spaces more dangerous. So all of the elements that help us distinguish the road from the pavement, you take them away? Yes. It's often thought of as sharing space between pedestrians and cars, but it is a term that's also often used about sharing spaces between other types of road users as well, like pedestrians and cyclists, pedestrians and scooters. And it was introduced to make people safer, but particularly to calm traffic. The idea was that it would slow traffic down because, because car drivers, people on faster modes of transport would be more attentive to the pedestrians and people who were using the roads at a slower pace. So as long as the person who's travelling at speed sees me, I'm fine. Whose clever idea was this? My understanding is that it was a very charismatic kind of uh, city planner who pioneered this, Hans Munderman, in uh, in the 1970s. And I think, you know, we, we perhaps forget how different an era that was and how disabled people were not nearly as much on the radar of planning. Both Anna and Brian are visually impaired themselves. So as well as this area being their professional expertise, it's also informed by their lived experience. So did it do what it set out to do? The bits of data that were collected were showing that, yes, people were sort of respecting one another in those spaces. But one of the key issues that I've come across is that people who find shared space difficult just avoid it as much as they can. So therefore, they're never going to show up in those studies that do observations of how people are operating in shared space. One of the key things that shared space relies on is the eye contact between the motorist and the pedestrian. And, you know, there's a sort of a signalling that goes on between the motorist and the pedestrian through uh, eye contact. And of course, that's impossible for blind people and very difficult to impossible for partially sighted people. There's actually a whole host of people that these shared spaces don't work for. Many older people don't fare much better, even just distracted people, people looking at their phones. For shared space to be safe, people have to understand the different ways we all navigate the city and then be respectful and careful of each other. So in Brighton there's this street called New Road. That's Dougie, a journey taker from another episode. Ah, and also our narrator. Which looks like it should be a pedestrian street, but cars can go down it. But there's just no, no delineation between cars, bikes, pavements, people. In a way, that sounds sort of worryingly similar to the, to the shared space. Right. The one in Bristol. Which is a nightmare. However, there's just the, the kind of the attitude to the place is just that because it's this road that everyone uses. Cars would never go down there any faster than like five miles an hour. Cyclists know that it's their responsibility not to hit pedestrians rather than pedestrians' responsibility to jump out of the way of the cyclists. I've always thought that there should be much more spaces like that where you could travel through them in a variety of ways, but the right to go as fast as you can is just not there. Like Anna was saying earlier, people have to amend their speed in line with those travelling at the slowest pace. But people don't, and the education isn't there. And as a visually impaired person, with or without a guide dog, pavement edges and clearly marked tactile areas are vital for getting around. Here's Claire, another City of Threads journey taker. 
the area of London which is, has Shakespeare's Globe and the bridge near there, what you've got is a really perfect blend of enough space for pedestrians, a clearly demarcated area for cyclists, a bridge that gives you lots of auditory, visual and sensory information and an ability to really enjoy London. So no cars in this scenario? How they did that was on the planning committee, they had people in wheelchairs, people with sensory impairments, alongside builders, planners and the council, and they spent a long time talking together so that there was proper inclusivity. Brilliant. Sounds like what we do at BPAC. But from what Anna and Brian told us, that's not the story for a majority of shared spaces. Paul's not rocket science applies. If you don't plan to include everybody from the beginning, you don't do it well. People may be interested to know that the the Department for Transport has an inclusive transport strategy that it launched two years ago. 2018. The future of shared space is included in, in that strategy and part of trying to figure out what the future is, the, the Department of Transport is planning to do some research to figure out you know, what next for uh, inclusive public spaces. So whilst there's a, there's a moratorium on any new shared space schemes at the moment and the, the government guidance that related to shared space has been withdrawn. The government, I think, are mindful that, you know, there needs to be something put in, in its place. And what about our human rights as disabled people? It's basic stuff, really, to access our city. Human rights apply to everybody, but in a disability context. Accessibility is one of those rights. Personal mobility is another. Independent living is another Equality, obviously, is another. And these are all things which combine to give pedestrians who are disabled legal rights to use their cities. The legal situation is quite complex, and, um, but it shouldn't be difficult for people to basically claim what they should be entitled to, which is to walk safely in their local environments. Back in the journey, John and John have made it across the shared space and, hungry, tired from their travels and ready for some liquid refreshment, are headed to John's final stop, the Bristol County Sports Club, a.k.a. the Sportsman Pub. The person to do it at all was my helper and she kicked the jack as she was walking across the green and it went bing, bang, bong all around the bowling green and landed in a glass on the table. We had Bristol Blind Bowlers came to play with us at uh, one time to do, to do a bit of an exhibition. Um, boys did they show the sighted players how to bowl. Uh, it was a really enjoyable day. Um, I was walking around the green with a, a hand microphone commentating, getting in the way of everything. But I think Alan would probably agree we, we all had a good day. It was a lovely day, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. We are at the Greville Smythe Bowling Club, outside on the green. We're here because the sportsman's pub, John's last stopping point, is the social venue for a well-established sports club for the visually impaired. It's the yeah, Avon Sports and Leisure for the visually impaired, sorry to correct you. Apologies, John. The club has been around since the 70s and organises every kind of sport you can think of, and plenty that you might not think of either, like archery, race car driving and flat green bowling, which is why we're here at the bowling club where John is chairman. And where we gathered? Socially distanced, of course, in August 2020. 
to talk a bit about John's love of bowling. I imagine there's quite a few of you listening who wonder, how do you bowl if you're blind? Okay, I was asked this question um, when I was playing a game one time against a sighted team um, just around, just down the road here, funny enough, at Bristol Bowls Club. And he said, um, how do you manage to find the jack? That's the little white ball that you want to get your balls next to when you're playing. Okay, so well, there's a string down the middle of the green which shows a blind person where the middle of the green is. He knows, or she knows, to bowl to the left or to the right of that string, and the bias of the bowl will bring it back to the jack. But he said, well, how do you know the distance? And I jokingly said, I guess. But you do get used to knowing the weight of the bowl and how hard to throw it. About four or five years ago now, we were able to uh, get some uh, funding. Part of that whole package was that we were able to train up about seven or eight people to be coaches. And I, for my sins, am one of those people. It's, it's interesting that disabled people are teaching non-disabled people how to bowl. The highlight for me was winning a singles match in the Nationals. So we went away for a week and played in the Nationals, and I won the Nationals once. Back in the journey, 10 months earlier. There you go. OK. So I'm glad you came. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, yeah. right, heading off out. As John and John head off out of the sportsman's pub on the return stretch of their journey, John reads out one of the wild cards for them to mull over as they head back to Arnolfini. Journey leads. What are the challenges, hazards and obstacles that you face when you're travelling or spending time in the city? What make it difficult or impossible to participate in city life? Um, what's impossible? I don't know. Is anything impossible? That answer, is anything impossible, pretty well sums up John's outlook on life. As a disabled person, you usually find ways of working around it. As I was born with no sight and gained sight later in, you know, when I was four, you learn to live with what you've got and you, and you develop certain skills. Um, so I, I've always said I'm one of the lucky ones who, who got sight, not lost sight. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we're going to introduce you to some new characters. Other citizens in the City of Threads who have been waiting patiently in the wings. Or not so patiently. Back soon. Welcome back to the City of Threads. Is anything impossible? I'm Alan Dyke. And I'm Nick Bignall, and we're your co-hosts. Right, let's dive straight back in. When John and John, from part one, made their way back to Arnolfini at the end of their journey through Bristol, they travelled along the floating harbour not far from where Colston's statue was tipped into the water, making international headlines, and crossed a distinctive bridge adorned with hundreds of tiny locks attached by lovers, we're going there now. If you listen in, you might just hear another journey taker who was travelling that same day, who had stopped on that bridge with her travelling companion. I like being in a little nook on Perrault's bridge, out of the flow of the human... the people who are crossing on foot. And you can hear, hear the music. I like the music. 
Was it a lap guitar? Um, I'd say lap steel guitar. A lap steel guitar. <laughs> and then you can see the boats chugging along. And it reminds me of when our choir comes busking down here and we sing along the arcade and sometimes in the amphitheatre. And here they are a bit earlier, in the light studio at Arnolfini. Hello, I'm Virginia. And my name's Rosa and I'm the travelling companion today. And Virginia and I only met about 20 minutes ago, so we're going to get to know one another on the journey. Did I mention that I already knew Virginia from before this project? Nick is a young, visually impaired composer, and along with sound designer Dan, created the theme music for this podcast. And what are you, what are you interested in now? It's still the same kind of genre of music, so funk, psychedelic rock, blues orientated. Um, yeah, you were right away with it when I saw you on the YouTube clip. Yeah. <laughs> we were rocking out. We had a conversation on Zoom and first caught up about our love of music. I like the sound. I like the sound. <laughs> I just like the sound. Virginia plays the spinet, which is a kind of baby harpsichord. I like that sort of early, early music, um, medieval and early music. That's my... It says it speaks to me. Anyway. I, I like other sorts of music, but that's the sort of music that speaks most deeply to me, I suppose, yes. We'd met because I'm a musician and I do some teaching and I was put in contact with Virginia to show her how to use this computer music programme. We fixed up a time where Nick could visit me because because of problems with sight loss, um, Nick had come across a programme called... Was it Synthesia, Nick? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Which is like a video game that helps teach you piano. That's right. And it's always very difficult for people who've got sight loss to to get it into you your head you've got to find ways of transcending your blindness somewhere or other and Nick came to show me how that works. Virginia is amazing to talk to. I'm 75 now so I'm towards the end of my life. I was only meant to be there for an hour but by the time I'd left that first meeting it had gotten dark. My family um well my grandmother was um, a Tuscan peasant she came from Italy before before the unification of Italy, and she came to um, place near Newark in Nottinghamshire. I was born in Chesterfield in Derbyshire, and um, I was the only girl in a family of older brothers. And I was quite clever, but um, I wouldn't have got to university without a grant. So I went to the all women's. Um, College of uh, London University. After my time at university, I came to Bristol and I've been here 53 years. (laughs) I never moved from Bristol. Um, I got married here and worked here and I'm now still living here. Virginia's sight deteriorated much later in life due to age related macular degeneration, which affects the central vision and is a very common cause of sight loss. Well, I've always had poorish sight, but it didn't bother me until the beginning of the millennium. It started to bother me, and then it just got worse and worse. Hmm. There's, there's no cure for it. You yeah. just have to adapt. 
so I've adapted. Virginia's approach is to savour the moments. Because I'm a stopper and looker. I'm not a somebody who sort of rushes through life. I like stopping and looking at things and having little reflections on things. Virginia told Nick a bit about the city journey she took as part of this project. What we did was go over Perrow's Bridge when we left the Arnolfini. Rosa was brilliant because she stopped on Perrow's Bridge and then we went across Millennium Square and then up the steps by the cathedral. And we did that in, in little stages and stopped to chat on the way on. And then we were on College Green and it's a non-threatening space to me. And what it is about College Green that makes it non-threatening? Well, I mean, I've always gone to lots of places on College Green, to the council house, to the public library, to the cathedral, to various um, cafes. And there's a little, there's also a little uh, chapel where they used to have uh, music and lunchtime concerts and music. So I've always, that particular area, which is just off the centre, not threatening and not too difficult to negotiate. So um, just as they, the type of music you're learning on the spinet speaks to you, areas mm. like College Green in the city. That's right. That's a very good analogy. Yes, yes, it does. Yes. Although there are areas that Virginia avoids, like the city centre shared space. I thought, well, I'm not really going to go down into the centre. I suppose we did, we did go to the top of those uh, waterfall steps. I think we did just do that, but I'd only have uh, gone to the centre with somebody like Rosa. I think it'd be, it's quite, quite a good idea if we can find ways of joining in the conversation about what we want our city, every, everybody in the city, wants it to be like. Now, we, we're going to have to adapt and change these current circumstances. I heard our mayor, Marvin Rees, talk about young people's mayors. They, they've got representation. And these young people, that they're, talk, they're talking on, like we're talking now via Zoom and so on, but they're talking about these things and they're getting their voice heard. And because of this um, climate crisis, they're very involved because it really is existential, this, isn't it? We've got to do something for what we want the future to be like. You've got to speak up, haven't you? Even I if you can't you're... march, you've got, you've got to do something about speaking up. Or don't you agree? As I grow older, I do find myself thinking, all right, well, if you've got something to say, then, you know, you... You should say it and contribute it, because otherwise your voice isn't going to be heard. With the Zoom call over, we're leaving Virginia now, on the day of her journey, talking with Rosa about one of her favourite spots in Bristol. Very near to where I live, where there's an absolutely beautiful grove, a lime grove of trees, near um, a branch railway line and the bus where during the summer I go and sit and um, it's very near a children's playground and it's very near where people walk their dogs and some of my neighbours come along and we have a chat and it's that place that I would go to because it's so near home and that closeness mm. to where I actually really live mm. is terribly important. We're joining Alan at the start of his journey. Finally, my turn. 
David, should we have a plate of biscuits? Should we? Do you want one? Do you want one? Do you want a rich tea? Take one now and then it'll keep us stacked up from when we go out. No, 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 no. All right? Okay, it's take a couple. That's we'll lovely. One we're, we're having a picnic. We're having a little picnic to take with us. Good. That's me with Dave Murray, my friend, at Arnolfini, stocking up with biscuits before we set off. And did you take Jeeves with you that day? Jeeves is Alan's fifth guide dog, an eight-year-old, biscuit-coloured Labrador with a pleasant disposition and usually Alan's constant companion. No, I didn't. Guide dogs are great, but mates are much better at describing the surroundings. And leaving Jeeves behind at Arnolfini, Alan and Dave set off, across Perros Bridge and on, towards Alan's first stopping point, whilst we get to know Alan a little better. I don't argue, although I might have done. Um, <laughs> it was, it, if you want me to do something, you have to tell me what you want, and then I can give it you. If you leave me to sort out what you want, and then come back and tell you you want it differently, that annoys me. So let's journey back in time. Well, to a rather noisy cafe, having a conversation with our podcast dramaturg, Steph, about his childhood. It started off as registered partially sighted yeah. when I was three. Alan was born with coloboma iritis, a condition that affects the development of different parts of the eye. With my central vision, yeah. I could see anywhere. Yeah. Read papers, do anything. Yeah. No but problem. But I couldn't see what was at my feet. Yeah. So my peripheral vision had gone. Luckily, an observant doctor was on the case. What the doctor predicted is, when I was three, happened. The reason he, he got it was because he was the doctor for the blind school as well. So he recognised me and saw where I ought to be. And he yeah. was brilliant. This would have been 1940. I'm able to give you a picture of Britain at war. I was lucky, you see, because I had no parents. Alan was brought up by his grandmother. My mother died when I was literally born and my father was off in Norway fighting the war. I lived with my grandmother and she was absolutely brilliant. She, she was so good, not for me. We lived on a hill, right? And there was a, 160 houses in our road and ours was 66, right? And Grand Cook was the only person they put a chair in the front garden to let the people walking up the hill sit down and have a rest. They don't do that today. Alan went to the Bristol Royal School for the Blind, aged five. The school, established in 1793 to train visually impaired people for future employment, relocated during the war to Temple Coombe in Somerset, a huge great manor house. We had long, hot summers right about then. Yeah. So they would just throw the window open and tell you to go out and play. Yeah. And you just ran down the steps and you had loads and loads of fields. Mm. And you could go down near the cows or the ducks or the... And, and you, you, you could go anywhere because everywhere you walked was the school grounds. Yeah. So that was no barriers. Yeah, yeah. No barriers. You used to climb the meddler trees. Uh, we used to milk the cows. Uh, all sorts of things. He moved back to Bristol when the war ended, but the new school regime didn't offer the same freedoms. That's when they put the barriers in. Okay. 
and straight away he couldn't mix with the girls. They used to think in the 40s and late 50s that if you used your eyes you'd wear them out. So they encouraged you not to use them. Stupid idea. So despite having enough vision to read print, the school wouldn't allow it. The master used to have a print book. Yeah. And at the end of the lesson, he'd give it to me and put it in my drawer. Yeah. Right. Because he only had a table. Yeah. Well, it's quite obvious that during the week, I'm going to take his book out and read it. Yeah. So that's why they got a clout. He's supposed to be reading Braille. Although his school was in the same city as his home, Alan couldn't visit. Bottom of Wellington Hill was an 83 bus. Yeah. I could get on that bus yeah. and go right round to my front door and get off the door, off the yeah. bus. And they wouldn't let me do it. And being a boarder came with other challenges. The other thing uh, which messed me up completely was the fact that um, we used to go to school. And at school you could find, you, could, you, you knew where all your mates were, you could work around school. But the instant you went on holiday and you went home, you had nobody to be with. Because the people who lived in the area didn't know you. Thankfully, things started to get better at school with a change of leadership. As the school progressed and the, the principal changed, um, they then started bringing things in. Um, we, we helped our, our geography master. He was a brilliant artist. We used to have to learn. We had an ice Steadford in which we had to say a poem. And this particular year was Alfred Noyes, the highwayman, and I couldn't get my head around the sequence, right? Yeah. So instead of thumping me, which was the order of the past, he drew this picture of the highwayman on his horse, sat, sat at the window with Bess. He drew all of that on a huge big thing, like this. Right? And then he said, okay, now paint it. And he gave me all the right colours to paint. Yeah. So as I painted the picture, I learnt the poem which Alan can still remember off by heart, all these years later. He'd a French cocked hat on his forehead, a bunch of lace at his chin, and a coat of the claret velvet and breeches of brown doe skin. They fitted with never a wrinkle, his boots were up to the thigh. He rode with a jewel twinkle, his pistol butts were twinkle, his rapier hilt to twinkle under the jeweled sky. Okay, Nick, what sort of experience did you have when you were at school? Well, yours would have been much different to mine because I went to school in the Dark Ages, 1943. So what was the year you went to Worcester? 2005, and I was 12. New College Worcester, where Nick went to school, is an independent boarding and day school for visually impaired students aged 11 to 19. When you went to Worcester, from a mainstream school into a blind school, what was the difference like? Yeah, that was very interesting. So going from a mainstream school where you're more or less the only one with a disability working in a class with everyone else who's fine, um, you go from the feeling of sticking out to not sticking out because everyone there now has a visual impairment. But then for me, it, that, like a new, I don't want to say problem because that's kind of a strong word, but a new feeling arised. I didn't know it at the time, but I was very aware that I was in an institution that for the most part was separate from the rest of the community. So it was almost as if I'd entered into this pocket existence away from other people. They had a good sports hall at 
Worcester. Yeah. Very, very strong sport. Did you do any of that? Yeah, I did a lot of sport. I did athletics, swimming, and I competed in both of those and would go to competitions and that sort of thing. And I also did some parkour. It's basically like an urban sport where you, the aim of it is to get from point A to point B as quickly and as efficiently as you can. Wow. And uh, it involves, you know, doing vaults and jumps and jumping from one wall to another. Some people can even jump buildings. And Yeah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> no, but I've got a medal for high diving. And I thought that was quite a good achievement. That is really cool. Alan left school to train as a shoemaker in Birmingham and Stafford, but by the time he had finished his seven-year apprenticeship, all the traditional shoemaking factories had closed. So, having passed lots of first aid exams, he got a job as part of an ambulance team instead, famously delivering a baby in the Odeon cinema toilets on his first day at work. After two years, the rules were changed, so each ambulance team had to have two drivers, which of course counted Alan out. So he ended up learning the more traditional job of basket weaving. I was a very good basket maker, but you see, if I could only earn X number of pounds, and I, could, I only had to earn the minimum, so once I'd earned my minimum and I knew I wouldn't get a penny more, why did I want to go on making baskets for, for somebody else? No, so I didn't. I went off and, as I told you earlier, I did what I wanted. Always got into trouble for it, but it was worth it. Basket weaving took place at Bristol Royal Workshops for the Blind on Bristol's Park Street. It was a special place run by the Bristol Royal School for the Blind. So people who went to school at the age of nine or ten could learn a trade at school and then be sent to the workshops for the blind and continue their employment right the way through. So you had basket making and mat making for the fellas and sock making and sewing for the girls. You were doing eight till five every day and the workshops were so considerate of our blindness, they made you come in even though it was snowing. And if you didn't go in in the snow, they stopped your day's pay. Despite how strict it was, Alan enjoyed basket making. Once again, you had a chance to put your own mark on life. So the smallest thing I made was an inch square and it was for a woman's engagement ring. And I had to make the basket in cane and then line it and pad it with silk and sew it all in. And that was fantastic. And the bit I liked at that time was the customers would come to you and talk to you about what they wanted. And you talk to the people about when they were having babies and they wanted you to make them a Moses basket for their baby. That was lovely. Or picnic baskets or flower trugs for people who were gardening. You had a story and you met all the people. Then the management in their wisdom came along and said, We'll put a shop person there. They will deal with the customers. You won't talk to them anymore. So I used to earn my minimum and then get off the plank and run around and look at the lovely girls in the shop. This year, as before in our history, we've seen men... It's 1970. The UK is in the midst of the miners' strike. Alan's life has recently taken an interesting turn. An opportunity to volunteer at BBC Radio Bristol for three months has come up and he has taken it. 
he is splitting his time between the radio and the workshops for the blind. On this day, he's been given the job of painting the toilet block at the workshops from grey to yellow when he notices something. It was really hard work to change a dark grey into a bright primrose yellow. And so I spent most of my time looking at a primrose yellow wall. And I went in doing this one day and I noticed that I had black flicks in my eyes and I didn't know what it was. And then there was red and green dots came and I thought that very pretty, but I didn't know why it was. But I found out later that those things medically are called floaters. And it happens when your retina is going to break. And that's what happened to me when I was on my lunch break that day. Park Street, opposite the Mauritania. We're back in Alan's journey on Park Street, a busy main street on a steep hill sweeping down from the Wills University building all the way to the shared space by the harbour. About a third of the way up, just after the turn-off for where the workshop for the blind used to be, is where we rejoin our travellers at Alan's first stopping point on his city journey. The shop that was here in 1972 was Indian carpets. And I was stood looking into this shop at a big Indian carpet, probably six foot round, and in the middle of the carpet was a brown and white striped settee. And that was the last thing I saw before my eyes went bang and I went totally blind. I turned around and I asked 18 people to help me go to the hospital and they all told me I was drunk and ignored me. And it was the 19th person that took me to the workshops for the blind where I got help. Alan and Dave retraced the journey Alan took that day, guided by that 19th person down Park Street, onto Great George Street and into the workshop for the blind. The building, which is Alan's second stopping point on his journey, is still there, but now it's the offices of an insurance company who let Alan and Dave come in, sit down and record the next part of Alan's story. This is where they brought me. My sight had gone, I was totally blind, couldn't see a thing. And they brought me here, I had no idea where I was. And the matron from the workshops was blind, put me in her car and took me to the hospital where I had an immediate operation. Alan told me more about that strange and very difficult time. Very strange, Nick, because I didn't really know what had happened. I was used to being able to see and I'd suddenly been plunged in this world where it was totally dark. I found that if I asked questions, I wouldn't get any answers. I was taken and put to bed um, and I didn't even know where I was. But I can remember asking loads and loads of people, time after time after time, what can I do? i got a, a wife and family at home. Please tell me what I can do. And nobody would answer it. Then one day, a lovely doctor came to see me and I knew that my world was going to change. We've travelled a short distance from the site of the old workshops to Alan's third stopping point, the Greenhouse Pub on College Green. I've come into the Greenhouse Pub on College Green simply because it's a pub, because 
when I was lying in hospital, having lost my sight completely, then the consultant came over to see me one night, all in a party frock, a long fur coat, a long dress, necklace, showed me all of this and said, get this man his clothes. And I thought, oh dear, I've done so far, they're going to throw me out. And she took me over to White Hart in opposite the eye hospital. And she said, you want something to do? There's the bar. I'm over here. Carry two pints of beer across. And I did, but I spilt more on the floor than and then. And she said, that's very good. Now drink what you got. Now go back and get another two. And the second time, he didn't spill as much. And Alan's confidence in what he could achieve began changing. What the consultant got Alan to realise that night was that if he could still go to the pub and buy a pint, then he could do anything. Maybe the two pints had something to do with it, but it stuck. And afterwards, Alan was able to begin the process of accepting what had happened and rebuild his life. We're in the Central Library on College Green, Alan's last stopping point. Alan and Dave are seated in the cafe here. They are talking about why Alan chose to come here on his journey, how this was where he came to do much of his rehabilitation with a blind group that ran courses, taught computers, gave out information on jobs. And actually, Alan's life was about to take a turn that he'd never imagined. I started off as a reporter for a programme for the blind. Yeah. It was a quarter of an hour once a week reporting on blind issues. Um, that was in 1970, and in 1974, the bloke that was presenting it left. So they asked me to present the programme, and I would only present it if I could do a different format. Alan worked with the team at BBC Radio Bristol, who came up with a new title and format to include visually impaired and disabled people. Changed the format, the title and everything, called it Guideline and it was um, Community Health and Disability Issues yeah. and that went on to 1994 oh, wow. yeah. and it started as half an hour and it finished up as an hour a week with music Time now ticking towards 25 minutes to one. Let's welcome into the studio my lovely guest of the day, Alan Dye. Welcome, Alan. Hi, Steve. Now, I've known Alan for a long, long time because he was here when I started at the radio station. And with their journey done, Alan and Dave head back to Arnolfini via that same distinctive bridge where we first met Virginia and Rosa on their journey. As this episode draws to a close, we find a moment to stop and reflect. We call this episode, Is Anything Impossible? The question John asked at the end of his journey. Because after listening to all of the journeys in the episode, it really seemed to sum up the spirit of everyone in it. Here's this episode's travellers, reflecting on the twin threads of their life and city journeys. I used to go everywhere with my guide dog. But guide dogs don't talk to you. They don't tell you what's at the side of you. So when I took my journey and went with David, he was telling me, be careful, the pavement's uneven. Be careful, there's a step here. And look at this window, look what we've got in the window. And he showed me all the locks on Purrow Bridge. I never knew any of those till I went out with David. John and I have known each other a number of years. We were able to talk about our experiences from that day. 
And he certainly, on a number of occasions, has told me since then, he does things differently than the way he did previously. With my life, what I did, I did what I wanted to do. So I didn't become a basket maker initially. I went to work on the ambulances. I went to be a shoemaker. Two things which would never be thought of by the employment officer for the blind. When I came back to Bristol, do the thought that I would have taken up broadcasting, TV presenter. As a disabled person, if you're born with a disability, you have one outlook, and that is you've got what you got, you get on with it and you find ways around. So my thinking is, yes, nothing's impossible, we'll find a way around it. And responding to what advice they'd give to their younger selves. Don't hesitate, if you want to do it, you can do it, go for it. I have to start by saying, I didn't like people giving me advice. What I need really is people should listen more and be aware of the fact that people have lived other lives and have information to pass on. Forget yourself and um, live, live for others more. I don't have much regret. One or two things that I regret that I hadn't done, but not very much. No, I've unwound the, the ball. And of course, Virginia continued reflecting on what we're doing with this podcast, our city of threads, all the stories we're unearthing, and what the impact of all that might be. The worlds that you create, whether you're visually impaired or not, that's going to be the most interesting side of it. Because everybody will have a different imaginative world, won't they? Yes, I, layer upon layer, I suppose, a sort of palimpsest of um, stories interweaving with one another. And you may find that themes arise that are, that are common to us all. I don't know. So you'll have a, a, a very textured um, whole, won't you, in the end, with a, a pattern probably we, we won't see until it's, it's finished. And there may emerge a, a pattern that we hadn't expected. We're handing over the baton to our fellow City of Threads teammates for the next episode. But first, we recommend that you tune in to our sister episode of Is Anything Impossible? Where through the magic of immersive sound, we'll take you deeper into the heart of some of the places and moments in our journeys. So you get to experience the city in our shoes. Best listened to on headphones. To find out more about these podcasts and the people featured in this episode, you can find additional information at www.partexchangeco.org.uk.